Amen. Well, let me just say, uh, you really got to get, I don't know how you listen to music, but you got to get that album they put out, Hope Song, Valley Songs 2. Yep. All right. Valley Songs 2. It's just on my phone. I don't have to find it. But if you need to find it, we can help you find it. It's amazingly good music, but that uh, Walked Out of the Grave song, listen, I don't know what your Tuesday's like. I don't know what your Monday's like, that moment when you're just sort of down. Play that song. I do. And then I start moving. You start really feeling it. And if he's walking out of the grave, I'm walking too. And you start walking. You're following Jesus. I, she doesn't always do it here because I don't know if it's too much or whatever. On the album, she does it, and it's really exciting. Please listen to that album. I think it'll bless you. I want to encourage you, too, before I slightly discourage you and then bring it all back around, because, yes, today we are going to be talking about hell. Oh, we've got to talk about God's judgment. If we're going to talk about judgment, we've got to go to the source. We can't judge others. We can't judge ourselves, but the Christian teaching that we've, we've gone through doesn't stop judgment because God does judge. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, please open them up to Luke chapter 16. Turn or tap your way. Feel free to use an electronic, whatever, but Luke chapter 16. Don't have a copy of the scriptures? We'll have those on the screen for you, so please don't panic, but we'd love to give you one on your way out. But I want you to get in the text today because I don't know that there's anything in Christianity that the Western mind rejects harder than God's right to judge us. Specifically, his right to condemn us and the way that's expressed through the doctrine of hell. I don't know of anything. You can tell me later some stuff personally or stuff you know of, but I don't know anything that that hits as hard or is rejected as passionately as this concept of hell. But if God's better than us, if he's smarter, if he's bigger, if he's holier, if he's wiser, if he can see more, if he's a whole order of thing higher than us and not just one order, unimaginably greater than we are, it would make sense That as he speaks to us, there would be lots of places where it doesn't make sense to us, where it doesn't look like what we would have done. It should. And instead of being afraid of those places, we need to push into those places. Because it's there that you're going to see the greatest distinction between your wisdom and his. It's there that you're going to find what you thought was wisdom is folly. And that where he's doing something different, he's doing it for a reason. And that you want to be on his wavelength, not the other way around. Jesus taught about this a lot. Talked about hell more than anybody else. But I'll say from the beginning that my goal, and I I think the, the goal of this text of Scripture in Luke chapter 16, is not to scare you. I don't even know that the teaching on hell is principally to scare you. I'll talk in a minute about how scaring you might even work against what we're trying to do here. What I want to do, what I think the the text does, is to try to get you to stop choosing hell. We're going to kind of flip the script because I think the scripture does. 
God is not stomping on your fingers as you're trying to get into heaven and he's sending you down to hell. Hell is something you and I are choosing. Death is something you and I are embracing. As we learn about it and see what Jesus taught about it, my goal is to have you stop that. Embrace something else, something better. Embrace life. So let's read it. Luke 16. We're going down to verse 19. Are you there? Doesn't matter. We're starting anyway. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. In ancient times, purple was hard to come by. You had to crush a specific snail in order to make purple. And so purple was the color of royalty. Purple was a color of wealth and ostentation. It's not just this guy's favorite color. He was clothed in purple, fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, which is hell, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your, very important word, good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you, who would want to do that? Very interesting. We can think about that if we have time. Would pass from here to you, may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said to him, the rich man said to Abraham, Oh, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my dad's, my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if somebody comes back to them from the dead, then they will repent. Abraham replies, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What is going on in this teaching? Let's dig into it. Well, a lot of this teaching, um, there's a great pastor named Tim Keller who's alive but retired. He was in Manhattan for a very long time, and he, he kind of taught a lot of this and helped me to see some of this some way and, and dig into this parable. But he's, he's in Manhattan, and he's got people all the time who are going, you're a Christian, really, like you actually believe the Bible. And he'll say yes, and then they'll say, well, do you don't believe in hell, though, do you? And he'll say, well, to these people. One thing, I, I don't think the, the description of fire is literal. And they go, oh, whoo-shoo, you know. Wow, great. Because if you're right and, you know, I go there, I'm glad it's poetic. And he says, no, 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 no. I think it's a substitute. I think it's a stand-in for something infinitely worse than fire. And the people kind of freak out. Because what's hell really talking about? 
We absolutely believe, let's be very clear, that hell is a place where God actively pours out his wrath on sinners. But there's a lot to be seen in Scripture that warns us of how hell is actually a thing that's growing up inside us all the time. Hell, death, is a a choice that we're making, a, a thing that we're embracing on a regular basis. There's something about hell that's attractive to us, that draws us to it. I'm not trying to scare you with hell. I'm trying to, to kind of wake you up and to stop you from choosing it. And exhibit A is this rich man. Now, when I read this as a kid and kind of growing up and you read the Bible like you're supposed to or whatever, and you kind of have these stories, and if nobody talks to you about them, you just sort of have whatever your understanding of it is, and you keep going with it. And for me, for a long time, I thought of this guy as a pretty, like, innocent guy who just kind of got shafted. You know, he's a rich man. He's living a good life, but that's not a sin. And then we find he goes to hell. Oh, boy, he didn't even know. I bet he didn't know. I mean, at the end, he's talking about Abraham going back and sending somebody to speak to his brothers. Maybe he just didn't know. But that is a terrible way to read this parable. There's no way this guy was like an atheist or had just never heard about God and his justice on sin after death. Clearly, in this story, this guy is calling Abraham father. Abraham is calling him son. There's a song in kids' ministry we used to do called Father Abraham. Have many sons? Many, you know that one? I'll sing it to you later. The point is that he had lots and lots of progeny because there are lots of Jews in the world. And when we come to Christ, who was a Jew, the fulfillment of God's promises to the nation of Israel, we also now are sons of Abraham. However, what Jesus is doing with this teaching is saying that there was a Jewish man. He was speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to disciples who were Jewish men. He's speaking to them after a big block and about to be a big block of teaching against or to the Pharisees who were very Jewish. Not just ethnically, but excited about the religious aspects of being Jewish. This guy knew God. This guy was probably even a good Jewish guy. He probably did what he was supposed to do. And you say, well, what about this poor guy that he steps over every day and doesn't even give the scraps from him? Well, the guy has sores, so maybe he was able to tell himself, you know, the guy's unclean and he needs to stay away from me. Who knows? You don't know. We do know that he was probably Jewish. We do know that he knew who God was, that he probably knew his way around the Bible, that he probably was a tither. So what happened? That's where the heart of this teaching starts. Abraham says, child, remember in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. So again, you can read this and you can think to yourself, oh, God is like socialism or whatever, where all the poor people get all the stuff and all the rich people have to give it up. And you either have it or you don't. And God flips it. He said, you had your good things. Something else that's very important to notice about this passage is that God gives, uh, Jesus gives Lazarus a name, but the other guy he just calls a rich man. 
And it's not a big deal to just call him a rich man. In all of Jesus' parables, he uses a title for somebody. It was the, the father, the prodigal son, the brother, the other son. He doesn't call them Tom, Dick, and Larry. He uses these kind of, here's what they were to each other. He's the rich man in this story. Okay, whatever. But of all of Jesus' teaching, there's only one person that Jesus ever gives a proper name to, and it's Lazarus. Why? Because there's supposed to be a distinction between Lazarus and the rich man. This rich man had his good things. The only other thing we know about him, then the end in hell, so the beginning of the parable, the only other thing we know about him is that he did live sumptuously and he did dress well and he did live comfortably. And Abraham said those were his good things. That was what this man valued. Who he was were those good things. And so when death came... He now becomes what? His identity is lost, and all he is now is one who wants those good things. For him, even the only things. It's very important that you understand that Christianity is constantly trying to reveal to you and asking you to ask yourself, what is your highest good? What is your greatest love? What's the thing that if you get it, then everything else is okay? What's the thing that if you say, heaven, if it's this, I'm going, and if it's not, I don't want to go? What is it? For this guy, it was those highest things. And this is where it gets very scary for us because Jesus is affirming what Scripture has taught, which is that you become what you love. Either you reduce yourself down to what you love or you expand and open up to what you love. But you become like what you love. Danish philosopher is a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. Don't ask me to spell it. He was a Christian and he set out to define sin a little more clearly because the Pharisees were tripping him up. Traditionally, we think of sin as disobedience to God's law. He said do and we did. He said don't and we don't. Or sin, he said do and we don't. He said don't and we did. And yet Kierkegaard is reading about the Pharisees and knows what we know, which was that they were zealous about God's law. They were manic. They were furiously attempting to obey God's law, adding to God's law to make sure that they had all of these fail-safes before they actually broke God's revealed word. And yet... When Jesus comes, he doesn't praise the Pharisees for their obedience. He actually calls them white-washed tombs. Outside is beautiful and white, clean and clear and sparkling with all the veiny kind of beauty of marble. But on the inside, their hearts have embraced death. Their insides are dead man's bones. Why? Jesus confronts them. Matthew 22. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so they got together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. We talk about this, but not enough. 
What is then the law? In those two words, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, what's the verb? Love. Love. All of God's law is not deciding how well you give your money. All of God's law is not deciding how perfectly you adhere to his, his picture for how you should dress or how you should speak. All of his law is addressing your heart. Whom do you love? Really love, mostly love. What is heaven to you? God's law is not a running schedule that will make you into some beautiful marathoner. God's love is God's law is not seven tips to being your best you or living your best life. It's not designed to shave off some of your warts and make you look a little better. It's designed to open you up, look inside and say, "What do you love?" Because you will become what you love. This is where our understanding of hell gets totally flipped upside down. I said God's not stomping on fingers. I think people think that. They're like, hell's down there, and heaven's up here, and humanity's got like their fingertips on the edge, and they're just holding on, and all of their obedience and righteousness and whatever they're trying to do, they're trying to pull themselves up uh, to heaven. And that God... Moving the goalposts, making things so hard is gleefully just stepping on their fingers that sometimes he picks stuff up and just, nope, and pokes them on the head and sends them straight down. It seems that way. So many people reject God. Doesn't it seem that he's gleeful in it? Hell just seems so excessive. Eternity, really? We imagine that he's gleeful in the way that he steps on our fingers or that he's like those poisonous little clerks in bureaucracy, and you come and you humbly hand them your pamphlet of, of pages that you've filled out and you think you've got this one notarized and this one appropriately or whatever, and because you had them in the wrong order or because the signature and the date don't match here or there or because you needed a 948 form and what you filled out was an S12 ting form, then they get to take the big stamp and say, denied, and they do it with so much joy. Is that God? No. He is saying that your heart is going hard after something else. That he is coming after you, and instead you, instead of you coming to him, are running from him as hard and as fast as you can. Your heart wants something else. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this, I think very helpfully. I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Look at this rich man. <laughs> He's still ordering Lazarus around. He's still just trying to get his good things. He's just trying to get a sumptuous something. And in hell, a little bit of water to cool your tongue is pretty dadgum sumptuous. He's just trying to get Lazarus to give him again his good things. He doesn't actually ask to get out of hell. The only thing he seems to ask is to get Lazarus in with him. He blame shifts. 
He's in denial. He blame shifts, strongly hinting that God did not give him enough information for him to have received salvation. Listen, God, Abraham, you got to send Lazarus back so you can tell my brothers what I didn't know. No, God's not stomping on fingers. Eventually, he simply gives you up to what you will seek What your heart has said is your greatest good. This is all through Scripture. Romans 1 says it really clearly. God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to the impurity, dishonoring their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. He's restraining, 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 and you continue to look away because you don't want Him. You want what? Respect, family, lust, gluttony, sumptuous food, fine linen, whatever. And eventually, he gives you up. What I'm saying is that hell is not just a pit. It's a pit you choose and are choosing even now. Hell is very similar in Scripture to addiction. You keep going back to this thing that's hurting you. And you've seen addicts that are out there, substance abuse addicts, and we're not judging them as individuals. Who knows how they got there? But you can see the process and the way that it horribly disfigures those people. They start and then they continue because they deteriorate. Deteriorate in the sense that They have to keep going back to bigger and heavier because each time they go, they feel less and less of that high. What happens to you if you need a bigger and more powerful fire to feel any heat at all? Well, you're getting cold. You're falling apart. You're dying. The addict deteriorates and the addict isolates you got to get away from people you love because people you love are going to try and stop you from doing this thing that's hurting you, which you have convinced yourself is actually heaven. And so you've got to hide that piece of you from people you love or just hide you from people you love. you got to isolate. And you got to live in a state of denial. This is going to work. Eventually, this is going to work. I, I know I, I didn't do it right, but I will. I didn't get enough, but I will. I'll, I'll figure it out. And then, and then, and then, this will make me happy. Really, truly, capital H, happy, finally, good, this. And keep going and going and going and going. Live in denial of the obvious fact that this is death. This isn't life. Lewis, again, he talks about how even... Small things, things we consider small sins, little picadillos that we don't compare to heroin will become something more. Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. This is either true or false. If you believe Christianity, though, you believe it's true. Now, there are good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I was only going to live for 70 years, which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever, perhaps My bad temper and my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. 
In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. Do you believe that? The comparison game won't work because you're saying to yourself, well, I'm not that bad. Look at this guy. But what you are engaging in, if your heart is not mad about loving in, uh, totally sold out for my number one being God, it will kill you. It is an embrace of death. It's an embrace of hell. Proverbs says it so beautifully. For the lips of the forbidden woman, they drip honey, and her speech, it's smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. All rejection of God Even good stuff that you put above God, all rejection of God is like embracing this adulterous woman who is honey and smooth as oil. And yet when you grab her, she bitter, sharp as a two-edged sword, takes you down to death. It is the embrace of death. The ancient Etruscans, I learned this this week, it blew my mind. Ancient Etruscans, I don't even know who they are now, so forgive me if I'm you know, hating on your family. But like thousands of years ago, Etruscans, they once kicked out their king because he was too cruel. He was too cruel to his enemies by this means of execution he had come up with. Where he took people that he wanted to execute and he bound them wrist to wrist, waist to waist, face to face to a corpse. And the dead person would decay And the slow poison of being that close to death would kill. And I bring that up because he did that to his enemies. But we are choosing to embrace death. That's what God's telling us all the time. And he's warning us. He's saying there is something better. Stop choosing that. Let Choose what is good. Come back to what I have for you. And you think, I'm just trying to scare you again that fear is going to somehow pull you away from it. No, it didn't work, and it wouldn't work for the brothers. Back in Luke 16, no, Father Abraham, if somebody goes from the dead to my brothers, then they're going to repent. And Abraham said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Think about it. If as I'm speaking, right in the middle of the floor there, it bursts open and somebody's smelling of sulfur and brimstone comes out screaming and says, ah, hell is real. You would all go, ah. What do we have to do to not go where you are? And whatever that person said, you would do it for a month, for a year. How long? You might shape up, and maybe you shape up perfectly the whole rest of your life. It really scars you. It's kind of a traumatic moment. But it doesn't change your loves. If they say give more, attend more, you go, great. Maybe you do. But it doesn't change your loves. You need something different. That's why Abraham is saying we don't need scare tactics. We don't even need visible miracles. We need something like what Moses and the prophets told us about. We need something like... Not just someone rising from the dead, 
We need someone to come back from the dead with some meaning to it, something that changes our desire to embrace death for a desire to embrace life. That's exactly what God's done in Christ. God's not stomping on fingers. He desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. How do we know? There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. How do we know that God desires all men to come to Christ? How do we know that he's trying to reach for you to pull you to himself, to stop you from holding on, embracing death, so that you will embrace life? proved it on the cross. He gave himself for you. He came for you. He went to hell for you, experiencing the fullness of the wrath of God, that deterioration, that isolation, pulled away from God the Father. And however that actually can even take place, because of his love for you. So what is Christianity? It's not do better. It's who do you love? Christianity, it's not about like, look at me. Watch how wonderful my obedience is and do your best to follow me. Christianity is look at Christ. See the love that he has for you. That kind of love, that kind of unconditional love that will melt your heart can finally somehow subsume, somehow it can take over, it can conquer, it can become what your love, what your life is really about, your good thing. If not, if you want to continue to be upset about hell, there's another great Lewis quote. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Do you want him to wipe out their past sins at all costs, give everybody who's a sinner a fresh start, smooth out every difficulty, and offer every miraculous help? That's what he did on Calvary. Calvary is the hill that Christ was crucified on. You want God to just forgive them? Well, they're not asking to be forgiven. They won't be forgiven. So you just want God to leave them alone? Alas, I am afraid that is exactly what he does. See, you've got to see hell differently because you need to start to see these, these little pieces of, of flame, of fire that's like popping up on you from time to time as your heart leaves God and goes after these other things. The Christian needs to be always looking for in themselves and others those little places where that rebellion is coming up so you can you put the flames out and blow on them and get your love stoked again for the Lord. And... For the non-Christian, you need to understand why it's so good that we have a God who judges. We have a God who judges and a God who loves so much that he would die for you. I pray, and I'm going to pray right now. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to accept that love. Teach us to trade a living woman for death in that Etruscan awful form of execution that you say we always choose. The enemy in the garden said to Adam and Eve, did God really say? 
And he tempted them in that moment by saying, God is not what is most pleasurable. Something else is. And when they chose that something else, they got death for themselves and for all of us, Father. And yet, in Christ, you chose death to give us that opportunity to embrace you. Let us take it, Lord. For those that are believers, have us take it every day. Not salvation. Salvation is once for all. But to constantly be adjusting the loves of our heart, examining ourselves to know that we might worship you, praise you for all time. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.